Church. Good to see y'all. Happy Sunday to you. If I've not met you yet, my name is Jeff. I'm the pastor here. And uh, we're glad to have you. Glad to have you on a beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, glad to have you on the live stream. If you're with us for the first time, uh, thank you for spending part of your Sunday morning with us. You could be doing anything. Perhaps you are doing anything, but you're still online with us. And so we're glad to have you with us. We've been in a, a series in the New Testament book of First Peter, and we're continuing that today. And so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're new to your Bible, why don't you like look in the front of your Bible? And there's a table of contents, and it will tell you that 1 Peter is, well, in my Bible, it's like on page 1021. That might not help you. Uh, but you can look in the table of contents and find that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible here and you're here today, uh, we're going to be working through the Scriptures. And so it's always great if you're looking at the text as we're talking about it. And so on the back, on the back table there, on the giving table... There are some Bibles there. We would uh, invite you to go pick one up, and you can keep that as your gift from us to you. We're going to be looking at a few, a few verses this morning, starting in verse 8 of chapter 3, going all the way through verse 12. And as is our tra tra uh, tradition, we're going to read these out loud together. So uh, peace me by reading along with me, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you for a new day. We thank you for new mercies and grace today. And we thank you because we need it. And so, Lord, we come to you today as needy people. Needy in a sense that you have things... Uh, that we can't get on our own. You have compassion and love and, and kindness, and you have forgiveness. You have grace and mercy. And though we can show a measure of those things in our lives towards other people, Lord, it, it really those things come from you. And so to give them rightly from us to you, we need you to pour them into us so that we in turn can pour them out onto other people that we encounter in our daily lives. And so that's our prayer today. God, would we uh, see Jesus in uh, the scriptures today and would, that, would your spirit draw us to him? And Lord, we pray that uh, in, in the gospel, God, that you would draw us, not just draw us, Lord God, but you change us and do that by the spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. All right, so again, we're working throughout uh, through uh, 1 Peter, and we've been in this section of the letter for several weeks 
where Peter is offering, offering practical counsel on what it means to live for Christ in a hostile, not-so-friendly um, cultural context. Peter says that that was the case in his day in the first century, uh, and we're applying that to these, uh, to these ancient words, saying that's also the case for us as followers of Jesus in the 21st century. As a follower of Jesus, Peter says it is to be uh, an elect exile. He'll say that in chapter 1. That was one of the first passages we looked at. To be a follower of Jesus is to be an elect exile, is to be a sojourner. The Bible uses language like outsider, of being marginal, of being a minority person. And those aren't strange words to us. We use those words, but we don't really oftentimes use them when we're talking about ourselves. We use them when we're talking about other people that we might encounter out there in the world where we live and work and, and play. But when Peter is using these words, He's talking about us. He's talking about people who follow Jesus. We're the ones who are outsiders. We're the ones who are marginalized. We're the ones who are minority people. And so really for almost a chapter and a half, the middle part of chapter two, all the way through the mid part of chapter three, where we are today, Peter is writing to Christians in various aspects of suffering in their lives. He talks to Christian citizens. He talks to Christian slaves. He talks to Christian couples, albeit the, the as we talked about last week, it was a, a Christian wife married to a husband that was an unbeliever. And in all these, he's saying, this is what the exilic life should look like as we seek to follow Jesus. So that's what, that's what Peter is doing in this stretch of passages that we've been uncovering for the last three, four weeks. Today we're unpacking a short exhortation that summarizes everything he's been saying. So next week, we're actually going to turn the corner and Peter's going to pick up a kind of a new topic, uh, really still on the guise of, of what it means to live for Jesus in a context that's not so friendly to that. And um, it's, it's interesting, Peter uses the word finally. Now, like this is the pastor speaking, Peter's the, a, a preacher of preachers. You know what pastors say when they, when they say finally, right? It, it, it doesn't mean anything, right? So... That's, that's kind of what Peter is doing. He's not concluding his letter, and all you got to do is look down. It's like, well, he said finally, and there's like two and a half more chapters left. It's like when I tell you, all right, this is my last, ver my last point, uh, so I'm, 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 I'm slowly closing, right? Nick's not here, so I'll pick on him. When Nick says, all right, we're going go, to do a slow close, right? That means he's got like 20 more minutes, three more points, and a little bit, right? So that's, that's kind of what Peter is doing here. He's offering a few concluding exhortations uh, to this dispersed church before he moves on to another topic. Finally, all right, that's the end of that topic. I got some more for you. Uh, particularly, Peter is focusing on uh, our Christian behavior in, in two different aspects, two different directions. He's talking to us uh, from the perspective of counsel towards how we live toward each other, Christians in the house of God, and then he's, he's talking to us, exhorting us in regards to how we um, relate to those who are outside the church, particularly those who are hostile to the church, those who would oppose the gospel and persecute believers. And the first thing that Peter encourages us in regards to um, our stance towards people like us in the church is that we are supposed to be a community of blessing. Look at verse 8. Peter says, finally, all of you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter is giving a summary. This is the concluding statement of what it means to be a, the household of God. And he's been talking about the household of God 
all the way back since uh, verse 13 of chapter 2, and he's carrying that on all the way through verse 12 of, of chapter 3. And this concluding statement regards what it means to be God's people in the world. Uh, he's giving us family values. Like These are the values of, of those of us who are in the church. If you were to sit down with your family and hey, say, hey, hey uh, uh, let's, let's come up with a list of, of virtues that sort of define who we are as a family, and you start listing those things down, that's what Peter's doing. But these aren't just the values that we have as the church. What he's saying here is these these ideas reflect who God is. This is the character of God that he's proposing to this, this, this exilic church. Peter's telling us this is how God is, and this is how we are to live amongst our brothers and sisters in the church by, uh, by letting these values be seen through us and how we live and, and act around each other. And the first thing he says is we're to have unity of mind. Unity of mind does not mean that we are homogenous in everything that we think, it doesn't mean that we're robots and we have to, and that uh, our minds are being reprogrammed to think a certain thing uh, about everything. But it does mean that we have similar thoughts. We're, we're being one mind about the truths of Jesus. It means that we hold the same convictions about the gospel. It means that we're committed to being, uh, being together, to live for the purpose for which God saves us. And the, pur- the purpose that the Bible says for which God saves us is that we would live for his glory. The Bible says God rescues us out of darkness and brings us into his marvelous light. The Bible says God rescues us from being his enemies to being his beloved children so that we might belong to this new family and that we would tell the world through our actions and through our words what this God is like. Of course, the Bible's ultimate purpose for us is that we would live for his glory. The idea of glory, whenever you see it, um, related to God in the Bible means weight. It, the word technically means weightiness. And so when we talk about God's weight, uh, his, his glory, we're talking about really the essence of who he is, all that encompasses who God is. It's the true reality of what God is like. And so Peter is conveying we need one mind on why we exist and why we exist, Transit Church, is that we would show off the glory of God, to use a phrase from my friend Eric Mason. We would show off the glory of God. We exist to be the set-apart people to tell and show the truth about what God is like. And so we live so that God is glorified, that, that it's seen through our lives what he's truly like, okay, through us, the church. Even as I say those words, the, the, the reality in my mind, as I, as I know my life lived out, is that we, we fail in this, don't we? Like, I fail at this, you fail at this. Peter's writing to us about this because he has failed at this. Anybody that's, that we know that said, here, yeah, I'm pursuing Jesus, has failed at this, which is why the Bible commends Jesus to us. This is why we need Jesus. The Bible says God gave us Jesus to live in our world, to be like us, and yet he did it perfectly. Jesus does not fall short. It's this beautiful passage that Paul gives us in Ephesians that talks about the church. And amongst the things that he talks about the church is he says we've been called to display who, who God is through our lives and how we say what we say and what we do. And then it commends to us what the church looks like. It's this organism that has Jesus as the head and we're the body. Verse 22 of chapter 1 of Ephesians is not going to be on the screen, so you'll have to turn to it in your Bibles. But here's the verses. He says, and, and he, God, put all things under his Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, 
which is his body, the fullness of all, fullness of him who fills all and in all. So the Bible tells us that for us to really know what God is like, we simply have to look at Jesus because he is the, the fullness of God. And so now we, the church, get to show a picture of that truth of God in everything that we do. That's what Peter is, is saying here. That's what he's commending to us. The summary statement, being one mind, being united. So not only do we need to be of one mind on who Jesus is, being committed to his mission and purpose together, not giving in a division, loving each other, not being against each other, but for each other. We're supposed to do that with all of the church everywhere. Like if I were to ask you, all right, so how many churches are there in the DMV? Like we would probably respond with like, there's a lot, right? Like thousands. Actually, from the perspective of what your Bible is telling us about the church, there's only one, right? There's, there's one church. That church has many expressions. In the, in the, in the, in the New Testament, when you see uh, uh, Paul write to the church at Ephesus or to the, the Romans, he's writing to one church in those cities, but those churches met in houses, right? They were dispersed in houses. It's the same thing with us. We have many expressions of the church around the DMV, but we are one church. And if Paul is right in Ephesians, then it's one church, Jesus is the head, we're the body, and Peter's saying, come on, act like that. Act like you're one church. Be of one mind. Live, live the identity of who God calls you to be. There's no place that, that we see that, the, the call to that, that in uh, Jesus' uh, high priestly prayer in, uh, in John 17. It's what he says, John 17, verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's he talking about? He's talking about us, thousands of years, many centuries later, people who would come to faith through uh, these initial believers' words. That's us. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is... He's explaining a theological concept where there's one God, three persons, and there, there's this idea of circumcession. There's mutual dwelling between the Godhead such that um, there's this community between, a beautiful community between them. And we, as God brings us to himself, reflect that. So one of the ways that we tell the world about Jesus is through our oneness, through our unity. It doesn't mean that we have, don't have divert. Uh, uh, diverse thoughts or diverse expressions of who we are. God makes us diverse, but when it comes to what we believe about Jesus and how we express that, it's, there's a unity to it. When we operate in a way that says we are one, we're telling the world that we serve one God and he's not divided. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, completely united. We are a picture of the unity of the Godhead to the world. In contrary to that, when we operate like we're against each other, what we're doing is we're telling a lie about what God is like. Because the Bible tells us, through Jesus' own words, as he's praying for us, that we're one, we're unified. Why? Because he's made us that way. John goes on. Well, this is actually Jesus praying, but John is recording the words. Verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you 
loved me. So Jesus is praying for us to God that we would be united. And I'm struck by these words where he says that God has given us his glory. Like I just just define glory as the weightiness of God. So how does God give us part of his weight, the, 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 the totality of who he is? And God does that kind of miraculously by the Spirit. When God gives you the Spirit, he's giving you uh, the impetus whereby he changes you to be more like him. But more importantly, he gives you, uh, uh, in a sense, part of his glory. So when the world sees you, they're drawn not just to you, they're drawn to God himself. And why does God give us his glory? He gives it to us so that we can tell the truth about what God is like. Not necessarily as individuals, but in our oneness. In our unity, John, uh, Jesus prays that may that they may be one. So here's what Jesus is saying, and what Paul is iterating, Peter is iterating. He says one of the most powerful ways that the world gets to see the truth of the gospel of God is by our unity, by our love for each other, by us being for each other and not against each other. And that leads to the next virtue, virtue, and that's sympathy. So unity of mind, we need that but also sympathy. A lot of times when we have sympathy for someone, we feel sorry for them. We feel pity for them in the position or the situation or the circumstance that they're in. Uh, Peter's not actually talking about that kind of sympathy here. He's saying, just like we need God's unity to display what he's like in the world, we also need God's heart. That's the kind of sympathy he wants us to to have, that we would enter into uh, the spiritual shoes of another person and see the world from their perspective. We kind of sort of talked about that last week, right? The exhortation from from Peter last week in verse 7 of chapter 3 was that husbands should live in an understanding way with their wives. Like, take a a minute to walk in my shoes to see see what that's like, to sense what that's like. This is a word that we need for our current cultural moment, right? That, that, we, if, that we would have more sympathy for those who are around us who have not lived like us and whose experience might not be like ours. And, 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 and just pausing and saying, hey, I value you because your experience is different and I'm going to have sympathy, perhaps even empathy, entering into pain and angst and all that with people who, uh, who are suffering. Seeing things, through, seeing things through somebody else's perspective, which leads to brotherly love. Peter says, brotherly love, well, he assumes, brotherly love stands in the face of radical individualism. We live in an I culture, a me culture. Like, I got my iPhone. You know why it's called an iPhone? Because it's, it's catered to you. New update, you can just make it however you want to make it, right? The world that we live in is all about I, 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 me, 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 what I want. And we've learned to bring that, we brought that into our relationship with the Lord. And so brotherly love stands in the face of radical individualism. Brotherly brotherly love says we're family, that we're devoted to each other, like to the end. We're called to love like a family does, except this is an eternal family, like no one's going to be apart from each other forever. We're going to be with each other uh, like beyond until death does us part. Brotherly sisterly love includes considering others more important than yourself, something that Jesus would say in the Gospels. And so in a culture of radical individualism that says, this is like my, my stuff, like my, my life, my car, my house, my job, my money, my time, my space, right? That's, those are all the things that we think of when we think of my and I. 
As we clamor over the, the new iPad or the iPhone, it's I, 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 me, me, me. I think our Bibles are screaming back to us, no, it's not I. It's a we, right? Not I, not me. It's we, it's us. So the majority of our Bible speaks to us as a community of faith, not just as individuals. We come to, we come to faith as individuals. Someone can't come to faith for you. Young kids in the room, if your parents are believers, uh, in a sense, we grow up in the faith of our parents, but at some point, God expects you to recognize you're a sinner that needs a Savior, and you need to confess your own sins to Jesus so that you might be saved. But when God brings us as individuals into his family, then he includes us into that family, the church. Yet the primary way that many of us perceive our relationship with God is that my, like it belongs to me, my quiet time, my religion, my personal faith. God is a personal God. We can't dismiss that. But he doesn't save us to be alone. He saves us to bring us into a family, to bring us into to his family so that we would tell the truth about what he's like to the world, that, that God has existed forever in community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, so that we have a, a brotherly, sisterly love that says, this is not just about me. It, it really is about, about us, about us loving each other. This is, we're supposed to be a loving family, the most loving family on the face of the earth. And the truth is, we are. Y'all believe that? The, the, the church is supposed to be the most loving family on the face of the earth. And the truth is we actually are. But even as we say, even as we confess that, the truth is we got a lot of work to do, don't we? Brotherly love. He also says tender heart. And so this brotherly love is a tender, affectionate, compassionate love that seeks to feel what others feel, entering into the emotional life of, of each other. That's what the Bible means by tender heart. It means that we weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice, that we, uh, we feel with one another. Sometimes we are um, shy to, to enter other people's emotions because it takes us to places where we don't want to go. But God is calling us to do that. And we do this as a church, right? We do it when someone has a death in their family, in, the, uh, in their immediate family or their extended family. We do it when someone has an illness that comes that has the, the chance to even uh, affect or take their lives. But we don't just mourn with people. We also rejoice with people. Think about uh, a young couple like Jonathan and, Jonathan and Jess getting, getting married, right? And we celebrate that and say, hey, go with God, young people. Yeah. Two, two weeks ago, we had in front, of a, in front of us a baby dedication where we celebrated uh, biological birth and adopted birth. And, you know, we just we enjoy that. And, and more than just the celebration of that, we were inviting these families and these, these young kids into our, into our family as covenant kids of God being recognized by the church. And so we're supposed to feel this stuff, feel the joys, but also feel the hurts. Uh, one commentator says, the more you get to know the heart of God, the more you feel the heart of God. And the more you feel the heart of God, the more you'll be able to enter into the griefs and the joys of other people. And lastly, above all, Peter says we need a humble mind. In other words, none of these virtues will be possible without uh, humility. And there's no place that, that um, the Bible talks uh, more deftly about humility in regards to 
God himself, Jesus, than uh, Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2. Here's what, here's what Paul says. He says, have this mind, Philippians 2, 5, among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So in a sense, Paul is saying, uh, you and me have the mind of Christ as we come to God through faith in Jesus. We get the very inheritance of Jesus Christ, which gives us his mind. Surely we don't get Jesus' complete mind because his, he has a perfect mind. But, but he gives us a measure of his mind. And I like to think that the mind is not just like the, the stuff encompassed in our brain, but the Bible says, you know, we sing this song, open the eyes of my heart. And so in a sense, our mind encompasses much of us. And so it's sometimes way on the inside, parts of us that we don't even uh, can articulate where it is uh, that God is, is saying, this is a part of being having a humble mind. In particular, this is what Paul says later on in this passage, starting at verse 6. He says, speaking of Jesus, he says, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That should boggle us that Paul is encouraging us have this kind of mind, this kind of, of humble mind, a mind like Jesus. It's a stance of humility, not, not pride, but humility. And so if I were, if I were here to, to describe what the church looks like from what Paul's words are, he's saying we are a family of humility because the head of our household is Jesus and he lowers himself. He serves not himself, but us. He thinks of others as more important than himself, even to his death. Like Jesus would not have an iPhone, right? He would have a Wii phone if there was such a thing. Because he gives himself completely, totally, willingly for us. And the thing is, we won't live this way if we think about it in terms of I or me. This is really about the, the fame of King Jesus, right? The one who we ultimately we serve. Peter is welcoming, welcoming us to imagine being part of the greatest community on the face of the planet. That when you join the church... You know that you're going to be loved and accepted and cared for and understood. There's going to be tenderness and compassion, humility and grace. This is us, right? Not the TV show. This is the church. That's, this is the picture of the church. All right, that's the first point. So he goes on. The church on the inside is supposed to look like a community of blessing. And then he shows us what the church is supposed to look like to the outside world, how we're supposed to act. And the thing that I take away from this is we're, we're, we've been blessed to bless. Look at verse 9. He says, Do not repay evil for evil, but reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And so verse 8, Peter's talking about the church, kind of like, here, all right, you're in the club, and in this inclusive club, here's how you're supposed to act towards each other. And then in verse 9, he sort of turns the mirror around and says, hey, all right, so uh, this is how the world is, and this is how you're supposed to operate uh, with those outside of the world. But if you're like me, my experience is whether you're inside or outside of the church, really, wherever you are in our society today, we've all done this to each other, right? We've, we've reviled each other. We've, we've criticized. We've cursed people, some, some who deserved it and some who did not. Someone said the Christian community oftentimes looks like cannibalism because we eat our own, like we're as uh, vile 
and as um, uh, I'm going to get you back, you hit me, I'm going to hit you harder as the rest of the world. And so here's what Peter's doing. Peter is exhorting us to be, con to be uh, contrarian. That's what he says. He says in verse 9, but on the contrary, Peter's saying, give what's contrary to what's being brought to you. If you get cursed, don't curse. Give a blessing. He says, if somebody acts evil towards you, don't repay that. Be good. Do good to that person. You bring the contrary to what is being brought to you. Verse 9 again. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. We've heard that phrase before, right? Like flashback all the way to chapter 2, verse 21. When Paul said that word the first time, what were you talking about? Talking about suffering. Right? So here, um, he's not necessarily carrying this idea of suffering all the way through, but there is a nuance here. There, there's, a, there's a semblance of that still left over. For to this you have been called, that you may obtain a blessing. And so let me explain this. Peter's not necessarily saying, if you bless others, God will be proud of you and he's going to bless you. Wouldn't we want that to happen? I mean, I think that does happen in the Bible. We could, we could pull up um, narratives and instances where uh, we bless somebody and we, we got a blessing in return. That's, that, that's not necessarily what Peter is saying here. He's saying you were called to receive a blessing. That's the nuance. You were called to receive a blessing. That's what he means by these words, that you may obtain a, a blessing. And so before I go on and explain that, here's what I think we need to ask the question of. Like, wh like why? Like, God, you've, you've reserved me to receive a blessing from you, but, but why do I deserve that? Why have I been giving a blessing when I don't deserve it? Why would God bless sinners like you and me? Why would he treat us like beloved children when we're really his enemies? Why would God pour out his love through his son on us by dying on the cross for simple people like us? Why in the world would God do that? We didn't earn it and we don't deserve it. I think Peter is reminding us that we've been given an inheritance called grace, right? Something that we, we, we can't earn something that we don't earn by anything that we say or we do. We have an inheritance that makes us co-heirs with Jesus. And so everything that's true of Jesus, everything that belongs to Jesus becomes true of us and belongs to us. And so the nuance here from verse 21 where Paul said, where Peter says these same words, for to this you have been called, uh, here, here's the nuance, here's the thing that you've been called to. You've been called to hold your hands out and to receive this blessing that God has for you. But guess what he wants? He wants you to give it away. Right? He wants you to give it away. Don't hoard it. Don't hold on to it. Don't go get a box and like, as Jesus gives it to you, put it in there. Don't get a lot box and, and, and put it in there and, and lock it up for, for a rainy day in case you need some for yourself. He says, as you receive a blessing, I want you to give it away. You've been blessed to be a blessing. That's, the, that's, the, that's the one of the purposes of the church. He's called you out of darkness into his light, that you would be a light to the world, and that you wouldn't hold that light to yourself, right? So that you're a candlestick lighting your own darkness up. It's for the world to see. You've been called to be blessed to be a blessing. And so in every way that you've been blessed to receive, you're supposed to give that back out. And anything you've received is not meant to be only for you, but also for others. It's not that it's not for you, but it's mostly for you to receive so that you can give it out to other people. I mean, that's a radical concept, right? I mean, who wants to do that? Because we're not taught that. 
Like as kids, it's just natural to us. My, that's one of the first words my kids learn. My, mine. And that was to their siblings, who they should love, right? Peter says, you've been given a blessing so that you might bless others. In other words, we have this incredibly rich dad who loves to give really poor people through his rich kids. And guess what? His rich kids are, are, are truly rich, but it's not material, it's not material blessings, not material richness. It's not, it's not like tangible stuff. We're rich in grace and love and mercy and kindness and compassion. We're rich in smiles that might brighten someone's day. They've been richly given to us so that we might richly bestow them on other people. You guys um, know anybody that does the, the lottery or that might do it and won't tell you they really do it? Probably some of y'all, right? All right, so someone that does the lottery, here's, the, here's kind of the thinking that we, we do. We think about all the good things that we're going to do when we get the, the, the payout from, like, when, when I put my quarter into the slot machine, I'm going to get these, like, thousands of quarters back. And I got, I mean, cha-ching! I got me some money. I'm going to do some great things, right? Sometimes we bring that into our perspective of the church. We project ourselves forward to this time where we have more, maybe even not something more uh, uh, of a tangible, just more, more of whatever you dream of having more of. And we say, man, when I get that, that's when I'm going to start giving. I'm going to start giving away to other people. I'm going to give to charities. I'm going to do good because God has blessed me to do good. But I think the thing that we're supposed to be thinking of is, like, how much am I giving away, like, right now? When I, when I don't have necessarily what I think is, a, is, is an overflowing abundance of, of stuff. Be that a tangible item or something that's in, just inherent, a smile to somebody that, that needs to have it. And so the exhortation here from Peter that I want to pass on to you is, he's saying, let's be known to be blessed to be a blessing. That, that's, that's, to, that's the thing to which we have been called. You don't get to be a giver of good gifts until you actually give from what you've been given. And so the, 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 the picture of Scripture towards us is that we got a rich dad, and he's already given to us from his immeasurable storehouse. So what are you already, what are you giving? Are you, are you giving anything of that yet? Or are you waiting for him to like dump some more stuff on you? Here's the truth about us. You're rich if you belong to the family of God because you have Jesus' inheritance. And so the question for us is, do you live like you have a poor dad or a rich dad? Do you live like you have a generous dad or a stingy dad? Because our father in heaven is both rich and he's generous, and he loves to pour out the blessings of his riches on us, on, on people who don't deserve it. This is what he's like, and we glorify God when we live like him. We glorify God when we give like him. We glorify God when we love like him. But of course the question is, how do we do this? Like, like how do I glorify God by doing that, by being like that, when sometimes it's not in me to even feel like that? How, how can I bless to be a blessing? How can I be the means by which God blesses the world in and through me? And we're, we receive the grace of God in that Peter actually writes it here in our text. Look at verse 10. He says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
So Peter is, uh, he's quoting Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is a psalm of David, and in most of David's psalms, he's writing songs and poems um, that are just the reflections of the life that he's living. And so the background to Psalm 34 is actually in 1 Samuel 21. To give you a little, little bit of that narrative, um, David is actually running from King Saul. King Saul is Israel's very first king. The Bible says he was the tallest and he was the most handsome man in all of Israel. God didn't want Israel to have a king. They demanded a king. So God gave them what they wanted, right? And God told them, when you get a king, he's going to lord over you and uh, it may not go exactly as you want it to. And that exactly happens, right? And so a few months into to, to Saul's reign, um, uh, he had some missteps, and what's most blatant about Saul is that he has bad character. And so um, what God does is God decides to, to switch him out, right? And so um, God has Samuel, the, the, the prophet priest, go and anoint David. And although David doesn't at that moment become the, 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 the outright king of Israel, he sort of has the anointing for that. God takes the anointing to be king from Saul. He gives it to David. And so in the rest of really all of 1 Samuel, throughout the whole book, we see uh, perpetual actions where uh, David refuses to take any action to kill King Saul. At the same time, Saul is running, chasing, uh, maneuvering, scheming after to try and put David to death. Saul tracks David down. David aim, uh, Saul aims to kill David. David escapes. And there's actually a couple times that David could easily have killed Saul and yet he doesn't. And so Peter is reflecting here on Psalm 34, but he's actually reflecting more so on David's predicament with King Saul. And so the idea is of a powerful, evil king and David constantly receiving the Lord's provision and protection from this evil. Basically what it is, is it's what Psalm 34 says, is he's, he's not returning evil for evil. He's not reviling because he has been reviled. In fact, it would, it, it, David goes to such extremes that to escape King Saul that he goes into the land of the Philistines and he plays uh, in, insane in front of the Philistines so that he could have a hiding place and he would not have to uh, perform some retribution on, on King Saul. And here's how I think this, this identifies with, with us in, in terms of this passage. Peter's saying, if we live out what it means to be God's people in a broken and depraved world like Peter is describing here, people are actually going to think we're crazy. And so David's followers, this small army that David uh, amassed around himself, they thought David was crazy that he didn't just take Saul out. Like, why do you keep putting up with this? This man is trying to kill you. Like, time after time, he's chasing us. He's running us away from our home. Why don't we just put him to death and you and we'll, we'll make you king? And David's like, Touch not God's anointed, right? That's not for, it's not for me to avenge. God is the one that avenges. And people thought he was crazy. And they'll think the same thing of us when we don't do exactly how the world does. Because that's how we're taught. Someone hits you, hit them back. In fact, hit them back harder. Why would we bless the people who persecute us? Why would we do good to those who mean evil towards us? Shouldn't we rather treat people the way they deserve? Yet what Peter is teaching us here is that in the wisdom of God, God doesn't follow the pathway of the world. Peter says, if you live like this, reviling when you're reviled, being evil when evil has been done to you, 
then people are going to think you're, they're, that you will join into the rest of society. You'll blend in, and you won't be the light that God wants you to be. But, he says, verse 10, but if you want to love life and see good days, this is how it works, which is completely opposite of that, right? And so here's, here's what I think we're supposed to learn. Peter, Peter's not saying God blesses those who bless. Does God do that? Absolutely. God does bless those who bless. Jesus says, and I think Luke's gospel, um, given it shall be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, running over from the measure that you give, it'll be measured back to you. So there's a, there's a sense that the Bible does say, uh, as you bless, you're going to be blessed by God himself. And so it's not that the Bible doesn't say that. Peter's not saying that right here in our text. So what is Peter saying? Peter's saying, you've been inheritors of blessings so that you might in turn bless as you walk out the blessing God has given you. You're experiencing ongoing blessings in terms of the flow of God's spirit working in and through you so you can bless other people, right? The whole purpose of God blessing us is so we would bless other people. One commentator had this, this word picture. He says, imagine you're loaded with a storehouse of blessing, like, like loaded, filled to the brim, overflowing with all kinds of stuff, except it's not just material stuff. It's, it's a storehouse meant to be spent in acts of kindness and grace and love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness, all the stuff that we actually really need in life. And he says, so you get to walk around in the world paying attention to all those who lack love and grace and forgiveness and kindness. And, and, and so think about it. Where are those people? Where are all those people that lack love and grace and kindness and forgiveness? Firstly, they're us, right? They're, they're mostly us, but they're all around us. They're, they're all around us. And, and you go into Wegmans, or you're at the gas station, or you interact with a clerk, you go to the hospital, okay? Even sometimes we, it's in our own family. We're amongst these people who curse us and don't bless. We're amongst these people who, who don't extend grace. They desperately need help. And yet they won't admit it. And so you, Christian, have the grace of God poured into your life. You've been called to be rich in grace, to operate in mercy, to offer forgiveness, even to those who don't deserve it. And God wants to pour his grace and his love and his forgiveness into your life so that you have this storehouse of riches about you. So that when you encounter those in the society, at Wegmans, at the grocery store, as you're pumping gas, when you go to work, that crazy person on the, uh, 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 on, the, on the freeway that cuts you off and you just want to return the favor, that instead of reviling, right, because you've been reviled, or showing evil because you, evil has been done to you, you go to your storehouse and you pick out something that person doesn't deserve, boom, and you give it to them, right? That's what he wants us to do. that we experience God pouring his life into us and we pour his life out of us onto those who need it. And I think that's what it means to be, to, to, to be blessed, to be a blessing to the world. So as you think about that, here's what I love about God. And I've said this actually for the last two weeks. I'm going to repeat it here again because it's true. It's true all through this, this, this section we was talking about, uh, talking about us suffering, being in um, in positions where life is not favorable to us, but yet we're still supposed to be God's light in the world. 
And it's this, it's a, God calls us to do things that we cannot do without him. You ever experienced that? That God calls you to do something that you know in yourself, man, I can't do this without God's help. And he calls us to do things that make us need him. I would tell you I'm in a predicament like that, right? Not a predicament, just like it feels like that's a lot of my life right now, right? Personal life, professional life. Like, God, you're reminding me every day through everything, like there's some things that I cannot do without you. And not only can I not do them without you, I actually need you. So come, come help. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he says. He says, bless those who, who persecute you. And I'm saying, oh, I can't do that. He's saying, forgive those who do evil against you. I'm like, Lord, I, I can do that, but I don't want to. Do good to those who do evil. And we're saying, I can't. And when we say, I can't to the Lord, guess what? That's actually the right answer. You can't do it. You can't do it in and of yourself. God is calling us to a life where we have to go to the storehouse of his blessings, to ask him to pour his life into us so that we can use it for ourselves, but also with the overflow, we can pour it out on those who we encounter out in the world, even in our families that need it. He says, for to this you were called, Transit Church. Those are convicting words, right? You've been called to this. The brilliance of our God is that he constantly calls us to things that we cannot do without him. And when we ask for help, guess what? We, we, we get the help, but more importantly, we get him. We get Jesus. We get him pouring his life into us so that he can pour it out of us. That's what David experienced. That's what Peter is iterating here, that this is the good life, right? This is the life that, that overflows, and it's an abundant life that, um, that actually gets God. So the greatest um, return on your investment in this storehouse of God's goods is you get God, but you also get to bless other people in the, in the meantime. You guys remember the movie Willy Wonka? Like, I'm a musical dude, so I, I love musicals. Um, Willy Wonka is on my mind because my daughter Zoe, she's, in the, she's a drama hawk at Hayfield. Um, well, when they were meeting virtually, she was a drama hawk. I guess she's still a drama hawk. But they put on the play Willy Wonka, and Zoe had a, a prominent role. And I mean, I just love Willy Wonka. It's the story of a candy manufacturer. He's a worldwide candy manufacturer uh, uh, majoring in chocolate. And we don't know the exact storyline, but uh, it, it appears that Willy Wonka is looking for a successor. And so he opens up this uh, uh, like a, a worldwide opportunity for, for kids, for, for five kids to come uh, and uh, whoever got a surprise golden ticket could come and take a tour of his factory. Uh, the story behind the story is he was going to pick one kid to be his, his successor. But really what he's looking for is not just a successor, he's looking for someone that has his heart, right? And so he invites these kids to his factory and uh, they take the grand tour. They're able to bring one parent or guardian with them. And so you have all these kids and um, the, 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 to make a long story short, what happens is they all fail, right? They, they, they fail the, the, the test that wasn't, they weren't told it was a test, but they all start to, to, to fail. And you know the characters, Augustus Gloop, right? He's a chubby kid. All he wants to do is eat. And so he like dumps himself into a pool of chocolate and just starts to eat and gets sucked out. And then you have Violet. Violet's a sucker for, uh, for blueberries. And she, she eats a piece of candy that has a blueberry flavor and she turns into a blueberry. And that, she's gone. Uh, Veruca Salt, Veruca is like a rude 
um, brat, right? And she's judged to be a bad egg, and so she's, she like goes down the chute and she's gone. And you have Mike TV. Mike TV was like obsessed with TV, and he has an opportunity to reduce himself in, in, like to, to pint size and go inside of a TV, and so he's gone, and so all that's left is Charlie. And so here's the cool thing about uh, Willy Wonka and Charlie. Charlie's not unlike all these other kids. You, know, you find out through the storyline, he actually likes chocolate. He loves chocolate. Uh, what's interesting about Charlie is he's the most needy of them all in terms of uh, physical provision. His family has nothing. But here's the thing about Charlie. Charlie loves chocolate, but he also loves people. He loves the people in his life. And Willy Wonka sees this in Charlie. He loves, he loves Willy Wonka himself. And the thing that Willy Wonka is looking for is a person that loves his heart. It's going to uh, not just see the factory as a means of, of, of um, blessing me, but blessing other people. He sees that in Charlie. And guess what? Charlie gets the factory. You and I are like Charlie in Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. We already are inheritors of the factory. What's the factory? It's the kingdom of God, right? It's the kingdom of God. It has the storehouse of riches, all the good stuff that we could ever want. The Bible says you already have grace and love and kindness and forgiveness and compassion and mercy. You have all those things, all these things that are stacked in the storehouse of God, all his riches. They belong to you. And what does God want you to do? He wants you to pour them out into, he wants to pour them out into your life so that he can pour them out through your lives. Will you let him? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. Thank you. Um, the truth is, Lord, that we are, we live in an entitlement culture. There's so much about our culture that, um, that's I, 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 that's me, 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 and we want everything to fit to um, our particular brand of making us happy. But that's not exactly why you brought us into your kingdom. You brought us into your kingdom that we might show off the glory of God. And part of that is, Lord God, that you have made us inheritors of a great grace, a grace that we haven't worked for, we haven't lifted a finger for, we don't even deserve it. Our lives don't measure to the, the, the grace that you've given us. But therein is the goodness of, of God in Jesus. Jesus uh, lives the life we should. He goes to the cross and receives the penalty that we deserve. And then he calls us to himself that he might pour into us his grace, his glory, his spirit, the storehouses of the kingdom of God, all the riches therein, grace and mercy and compassion and love and kindness, the smiles that we all need when we wake up in the morning. And he says, as I've given you, as freely you've received, freely give. And so, Lord, help us. We're those who say, Lord, we recognize it. We're crying, uncle. We, we, we see it now. You're calling us to things that we don't have the wherewithal to do. It's not in us. And so we're praying, Lord God, that you help us in Jesus. Help us to be the people you've called us to be. Help us in those moments where we do actually want to play tit for tat, where someone treats us badly. Lord, it's in us to want to treat them the same way we've been treated. Lord, help us, restrain us, refrain us. Give us your spirit. Not only that, help us to give it to others. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.